All right, so as you guys know, we are starting a new class this morning on the attributes of God. And I'd love to tell you that this morning we're actually going to start talking about one of the attributes, but no, we're not. Uh, this morning we're going to do the prolegomena, which is to say we're going to do the introduction. And we're going to talk about some issues concerning the attributes that we need to understand, that we need to know about before we actually get to talking about the actual attributes of God. Um, I do want to recommend a book to you. This is a different cover than what we have in the bookstore. It's A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. It's a nice, short, little book, and he covers a lot of the attributes that we're going to be talking about throughout the class. So if you'd like a good resource, highly recommend. I know there's a couple of them in the bookstore. All right, let's go. Let's get started here. Speaking of A.W. Pink, the attributes of God are probably one of the least studied things in theology for most people. Um, Paul Washer is famous for going and standing in front of preachers and saying, how many years have you spent studying the attributes of God? A.W. Pink said this, Comparatively few who occasionally read the Bible are aware of the awe-inspiring and worship-provoking grandeur of the divine character, that God is great in wisdom, wondrous in power, yet full of mercy is assumed by many as common knowledge. But to entertain anything approaching an adequate conception of his being, nature, and attributes as revealed in Scripture is something which very few people in these degenerate times have done. Studying the attributes of God is something that not many have done, and when you do it, it will have profound effects for you and your life. R.C. Sproul asked this question, What is the greatest need of people in the church? You know what his answer was? People in the church need to know who God is. And when we're studying the attributes of God, we're studying God himself. And we're trying to learn who God is. And I said a moment ago that this will have an effect on your life. As you study God, as you study his attributes, it'll change the way you live. Steve Lawson, last little quote here, said this, As our knowledge of God goes, so goes the direction of our lives. A high view of God will lead us to lofty worship of him. A growing understanding of his character will lead us to holy and righteous living in the pursuit of his will. Conversely, a low view of God will lead to diminished praise of him. Inevitably, base views of God will lead to low and empty living. Your view of God tells you a lot about how you live. How you live says a lot about what you think of God. And oftentimes when we think about the attributes of God, we start with some assumptions about God. And we start with some assumptions that we already have, and we come to the table with them. And this morning, I'd like to put the assumptions off to the side. And I want to start by giving us that lofty view of God. And it's not, I want to put God where he belongs. I want to put us where we belong. To make sure that we're not looking eye level with God, we're looking up. And I want to do that by just going back. And I want to go back to a time when there was nothing. When there were no stars, there was no sun, there was no moon, there was no earth, there was no seas, no people, there was nothing. There were no heavenly hosts of angels, it was just God. And when we say that there is nothing, I don't think most of us really comprehend what we're actually saying. If you walk into a room and turn on the light and you see no furniture and you see nothing on the floor, you say there's nothing in here. But that's not actually true, is it? 
The fact that you walked into the room says there is something in there. Because there's four walls, you identified it as a room. There's four walls, a floor, and a ceiling. The fact that you turn on the light means there's a light fixture and a light switch. And the fact that you're still breathing says there's oxygen in the room. We don't actually understand what it means for there to be absolutely nothing. But there was a time when there was absolutely nothing. And all that existed was God. One divine essence and three persons, and he existed all by himself. And he existed that way for all of eternity. And again, another concept we have trouble conceptualizing. If I asked you what it is like to live a hundred years, you might be able to figure that out. But if I asked you what is it like to live a thousand years, what is it going to be like a thousand years from today? Your mind probably shuts down a little bit. And if I ask you to think about what is it going to be like in a million years, well, my brain just quit. Or a billion years, or a trillion years, and even if you add some more zeros onto the end of it, you still haven't gotten to eternity. You still can't grasp how long God has been around. And there was a time when he existed by himself with no one and nothing else around, just him, and he was that way for all of eternity. And he could have remained in that state. Perfectly satisfied, perfectly content with himself. But he decided that he was going to create. Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And why did he create? There's a poem that says God created because he was lonely. So he decided to make a man. No, God didn't create because he was lonely. He didn't create because he needed something. He created because it's what he decided to do. It was according to his own will. He chose to create. One writer said, had God so pleased, he might have continued alone for all of eternity without making known his glory unto creatures. Whether he should do so or not, he determined solely by his own will. He was perfectly blessed in himself before the first creature was called into being. God created only because he chose to do so. God didn't need anything. He didn't need anything from anyone. He could have remained just as he was, and he would have been perfectly blessed for another eternity. Romans 11 for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor, or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? What have you and I given to God? Nothing. In his essence, in his nature, he gains nothing from creating us or allowing us to exist. Job 35, 7. If you are righteous... What do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? He is perfectly sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing. He needs no one. Everything we do is merely what is expected of us. Jesus said this in Luke 17. He says, So you too, when you do all the things that are commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. Now it is true that through righteous living, you can manifest the glory of God. You can bring 
temporal praise and worship and attributed glory to God. And through sinful behavior, you can diminish the praise and the worship of other creatures, including yourself. But nothing we do can change or alter or add to his essential nature. And his essential nature is so great and so magnificent and so beyond us that when we compare ourselves to him, we are insignificant. Isaiah wrote about this. Isaiah 40. He said this, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Imagine I had a 20-gallon bucket, and I filled it up to the rim. And I took a little eye drop, you know the little eye droppers? And I removed one drop from the 20-gallon bucket. Could you look at that bucket and tell me that drop was missing? It would be insignificant. It wouldn't even register. You wouldn't even notice. Or the nations are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Now, today we have these high-tech scales that if you just blow on them, it'll register. That's not the scales he's talking about. He's talking about the old-school scales where it's literally the, you know, the teeter, and you put a known weight on this side, and then you put the unknown weight on the other side, and if it balances, you know how much it weighs. Here's the argument. Take God, put him on one side of the scale. Take all the nations of the world, all the wealth, the power, and the glory of all the nations, put them on the other side of the scale, and it doesn't even register. In comparison to God, it's like putting a little speck of dust on the other side of the scale. It's not even noticeable. There's no discerning it. The nations are as nothing compared to him. Isaiah continues, Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn nor its beasts enough for burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. It's not saying that you as a human being don't have inherent value. You do. You're made in the image of God. He's talking about a comparison between the nations of the world and all the people of the world in comparison to God himself. And when you make that comparison, you and I just kind of vanish. And then he says this, he closes out, Isaiah 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? What likeness will you compare with him? What is there in the universe that comes anywhere close to God? What can you compare him to so that you have a better understanding of him? Answer, nothing. This is a God that you cannot think up. You cannot create this God in your mind. This is not a God that the ancient pagans thought up when they were sitting around a table. Their gods were gods of wood and stone. Gods who looked very much like the people who carved them. The God of Scripture is nothing like you have ever seen or you will ever see. In fact, Paul told the Greeks, he said, this is the unknown God. He's unknown. Because you cannot come to a knowledge of who God is and what God is through your own vain imagination. You cannot come to a knowledge of God by looking at the world, by looking at creation, 
by going through the scientific method, all natural methods of investigation would leave God completely untouched. And you would never come to know him. You would never come to realize who he is. You cannot attain the knowledge of God by yourself. Through your own efforts. God has to reveal himself. And if he doesn't reveal himself to you, if he doesn't make himself known, you cannot know him. You cannot serve him. You cannot worship him. He will forever remain unknown to you unless he reveals himself. And God has revealed himself. He's done so in general revelation. General revelation is the creation. God created the universe, and in Romans 1 it says that he has made his eternal power and divine attributes known to you. How many of you have gone camping? You ever tried to light a campfire? Anybody ever struggled to light a campfire? All right. Walk outside after church today. Look up in the sky. There's a big fireball up there. Somebody lit that thing. And I don't know about you, but I've had trouble keeping a campfire going. He keeps that one going. And anyone who has the ability to light that thing up and then keep it going in a process that our scientists still can't figure out how to pull off and sustain without killing themselves must be greater than you and I. But creation doesn't bring a true, full knowledge of who God is. It just gives you an indication that he exists and that he is powerful. It only brings enough to know that God exists, which means it only brings enough to bring about condemnation when sinners refuse to worship him. But you're not going to learn about this incomprehensible God by going and staring at bark on a tree. You're not going to learn about this God by studying rocks or the creatures that he made. Creation is insufficient for coming to a knowledge of God. That's why God had to give more. Down in the Amazon, there are tribes that have never left the jungle. And going and visiting these tribes is kind of like getting in a time machine and going back a thousand years. Because these tribes live the same way their ancestors lived a thousand years earlier. They dress the same way, which is to say they don't wear a whole lot. What they do wear, they've made from animal skins. They hunt in the same way with the same tools. They eat the same way. They have the same kind of little huts. These, have, these individuals have never seen modern society. They've never seen a modern city. They've never seen a computer. They've never seen a cell phone. Imagine if I went down to the Amazon... And I went down there, and I was exploring the Amazon. I had my cell phone with me. I put it in a Ziploc baggie because it's the rainforest. And I sit down on a log to take a break, and I set my phone down, and I forget it there. And I keep on hiking. And a couple hours later, one of those tribesmen finds my phone. And he picks it up, and he starts looking at my phone and examining it. And he's amazed because he picks it up, and he looks at it, and the phone lights up. And the more he thinks about the phone and the more he examines the phone, 
he begins to think that by examining this phone, by studying the, the unique characteristics of the phone, he can somehow learn about the person who made the phone. And he's going to go back and tell his other tribesmen about the guy who made this device. He's going to tell them what the person looks like. He's going to tell them where he lives. He's going to tell them his essential nature. He's going to tell them all about what this phone maker really loves and likes and wants. He's going to describe the person who made this phone simply by looking at the phone. How many of you think he's going to get it right? How many of you think he's going to get it completely wrong? Because he's not going to come up with some guy in Southern California who wears black turtlenecks and blue jeans. He's going to come up with a completely wrong image. And he's thinking about another person. And yet that's what people do when they think they can study creation and get to an incomprehensible God and learn who he is by looking at what's around them. God is incomprehensible. Creation is insufficient for knowing who God is fully. He must reveal himself in Scripture. And if he doesn't reveal himself beyond that, you and I will never come to a true knowledge of who he is. So, as we talk about the attributes of God, we're talking about understanding God's nature. Understanding who and what God is. Now, generally speaking, when you teach a class, you're assuming your audience knows something about the subject, and you kind of build off what they know. I'd like you to not do that today. Most of you know something about the attributes of God. And I'd like you to take what you know about the attributes for a few moments and set it off to the side. And if I ask any questions in the next few moments, you are not allowed to tell me the attributes of God. You're not allowed to talk about the attributes. You're not allowed to do that. You have to operate for the next few minutes with no knowledge of his attributes. Is that fair? We're going to take a little thought experiment and go on a little journey here. We're going to ask a couple questions. We're going to ask who is... And what is? And we're going to do this with God, but I want to start first closer to home. If I ask the question, I need a volunteer. Who, who would like to be a volunteer? Jessica. If I ask the question, who is Jessica? Well, those of you who know her would probably give some unique answers. Answers about who she is. And that is to say, you'll probably tell me a lot about what she does. Well, Jessica's a mom. Jessica's a wife. Jessica's a daughter. She's a granddaughter. And you'll tell me about her relationships and how she performs in those relationships. Or you'll tell me about the work that Jessica has done and the different jobs that she's had. Or you may tell me about the things that she believes. She's a Christian. You may tell me about her politics. Or you may tell me about her morals and the things that she values. All of these describe who Jessica is. But it doesn't answer the question of what is Jessica. And the reason why that's such a weird question to you is because you already have some assumptions about Jessica. You already know something about her. So let me back away from Jessica for a moment and ask another question. And I'm going to tell you about my friend. You're not allowed to say anything about this because you know this I'm going to tell you about my friend. 
His name is Clay. I haven't actually seen Clay in a while. It's been several years since I last saw him. And I'm just going to tell you a little bit about my friend Clay. Clay loves a good scratch behind the ears. He likes to chew on bones, and he really likes to try to lick you in the face. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. What is Clay? He's a dog. Huh? (laughs) Yeah, if he was a human, we'd have a problem, wouldn't we? (laughs) He's a dog. You know how I... But wait a minute. Have you seen Clay? Have you ever met him? Have I shown you a picture of Clay? You know that how. How'd you know he was a dog? I described what he likes. I described what he does. And you have a category, you have a genus that you have interaction with. All of you have interacted with dogs before. And you understand that group And you understand by their nature, they love it when you scratch their ears, they like to chew on bones, and they try to lick you in the face. That's just what they do, because that's what they are. It's a dog. And you can conceptually understand who Clay is based not upon your knowledge of Clay himself, but upon your knowledge of that group. Okay? Describe some of his physical attributes. Four legs, good. What are some other physical attributes of clay? A tail. It was kind of nubby. It was short. Fur. Ears. He had floppy ears, yeah. A snout, yeah. Depending on length may vary, but you've... Paws, yeah. So you've never seen him. You don't know anything about clay. There's only two people in this room who have seen clay. Her and me. But you know what he is because of how he behaves and because you have interaction with that group, that genus, right? Okay, let's go back to Jessica. When I ask the question, who is Jessica, you can give me all sorts of answers about who she is and what she does. Because you have interaction with humans, because you've interacted with other people of the same genus, you understand that when I tell you she's held different jobs and she was a medical assistant, you understand, even if you've never met Jessica, dogs cannot be medical assistants. Right? When I tell you she's a wife, you understand that I'm not talking about a parakeet. Why? Because you also have interaction with other humans. You've had interaction with that genus. And you understand that genus. Even if you've never met Jessica... The second I ask you the question, what is Jessica, your answer will be human. And if you know she's a human, you don't need a picture of her. You don't need for me to describe her to you. You can tell me some physical attributes about Jessica. You can tell me, well, she probably has two eyes, two ears, a nose, a mouth, two shoulders, two arms, two elbows, two hands, ten fingers, and keep on going. You could probably tell me something about what she likes. She likes to eat at least two to three times a day. You know these things about her simply because you have interaction with other creatures of that same genus. Everybody with me so far? All right. Let's go and ask this question. What is God? 
Now we have a problem, don't we? I don't have a genus I can put him in. And he said, well, I'm going to be biblical about it. I know what God is. God is spirit. Okay. Well, what's the logical question there? Yeah, what, what is a spirit? And when we actually look at the definition of what a spirit is, we don't actually come up with a real good answer on what is God. Because a spirit is defined this way. An independent, non-corporal being in contrast to a being that can be perceived by the physical senses. So when we say God is spirit, what have we actually said? We've said that God is not material, not physical. We've just said what he is not. Okay, but let's just run with that. God is spirit. Maybe that is a genus. Maybe that is a category in which I can place God's nature. And I can just say he's a spirit, and that'll help me understand. Okay, so what interaction have you had with other spirits? All right, well, some of you are going to say, well, I have a spirit, and you have a spirit, so I have interaction with other spirits. Paul says our, our, our warfare is spiritual. And so in some sense, we do warfare with demons, and those are spirits. And in some sense, we have some kind of interaction that, unbeknownst to us, with angels, and they are spirits. The question is, are any of those spirits like God? And the simple answer to that is no. All of those spirits are finite. All of those spirits are created beings. God is uncreated and he is eternal. I've had no contact with spirits. I have no way to understand them or conceptualize them because I've never seen them. I've never interacted with them. It's not like a dog or a person that I have some connection to. And God, like I said, is not like those other spirits, and we have no way to compare him to anything. And the best descriptions we can give, God is divine, which is a true statement. He is deity. But again, how many deities do you know? How many deities have you actually seen and interacted with? This presents a major problem because when we talk about God's nature without the attributes of God, we don't have a way to explain what he is or who he is. Go back to Isaiah 40. To whom will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare him with? There's nothing like him anywhere. We don't have terms that explain God outside of what he has given us. What is God? He's in a genus all by himself. He's in a category alone. There is nothing and no one else like him. The answer to the question, what is God, exceeds your ability and my ability to answer it. We cannot come to a knowledge of God on our own. God must reveal himself to us. We don't even have words to explain what he is. But God has revealed himself. God has made himself known. God has not left us in the dark. You see, God is incomprehensible. He is far beyond everything we can think of and everything we can imagine. Our finite minds cannot understand the fullness of who God is. 
And so for us to know God, God has to condescend. He has to come down to our level. He has to treat us like a little infant and use baby talk. A lot of moms in the room, you've done the baby talk thing. You don't actually use real words. You just kind of make some syllables with them. Baby talk is teaching the child that using your lungs, your vocal cords, your mouth, and your tongue, you can make sounds. And you're helping the child learn how to make sounds. And eventually that will turn into them talking. But you don't sit down and try to have an in-depth discussion with them on theology, do you? The little baby up there is not going to understand. In the same way with you, God comes down to our level and he talks to us on our level. And he reveals himself not in a way that we're going to understand fully everything about God, but he reveals himself in a way that our finite minds can actually begin to grasp a little bit about what he is. So when we ask the questions, what is God or who is God? God has revealed himself in one way. He's revealed himself through his attributes. The answer to both these questions is his attributes. They answer not only who, but what. Just like when we talked about the dog. The dog does what he does because he is what he is. That's even more true with God. God's nature and his actions are inseparably linked. The attributes of God reveal his nature to us. They tell us who he is and what he is. And we have no other way to know or to comprehend God apart from his attributes. Is everybody with me? Have I lost anybody? Anybody confused? Okay. Louis Burkhoff, which is a great little systematic theology, but Louis Burkhoff said this, apart from the revelation of God and his attributes, we have no knowledge of the being of God whatsoever. But insofar as God reveals himself and his attributes, we also have some knowledge of his divine being, though even so, our knowledge is subject to human limitations. That is to say, God has revealed himself to us in a way that we can understand, but the problem is not with his revelation. The problem is with our limited capacity to understand it. And he's revealed himself through his attributes. Now, there are some problems when we say the attributes of God. And there are some wrong views that come up when people hear about God's attributes. And I want to give you two of them, just so we make sure that we don't fall into these errors. Let's start by first just looking at the term attributes. The name itself lends itself to uh, some misunderstanding. It comes from two Latin words, and I'm not going to try to pronounce both of these. The first one's easy, ad. I'm bilingual. Uh, it means two. And the second one, I'm not going to try to pronounce, it means to assign. To assign to. So you can define attributes this way. Attributes are qualities or characteristics that are closely and permanently associated with someone that can be used to identify him. You were able to identify my friend Clay as a dog simply by his attributes. But this term has also led some people to error. Some have said that the attributes are parts of God's nature. Here's what they say. Each attribute has a distinct name. And each name corresponds with a distinct reality 
of God. Therefore, each attribute is a distinct part of God's nature, separate from the other attributes. Uh, Let me put this in human terms. Bob has brown hair. Brown hair is an attribute of Bob. But the brown hair does not describe all of Bob. It only describes his hair. If I change Bob's hair color, is Bob no longer human? No, he's, he had blue hair. He's still a human. If I shave all of Bob's hair off, is he still a human? Of course. It is just one part of Bob, but it does not encompass all of him. Everybody with me? And they say that is true of God. When we talk about God's attributes of omnipresence, omnipresence is just one part of God. But if the attributes are parts of God, then God's righteousness, power, and love are only parts of him. They do not describe all of God. You see, I have certain attributes that come from God. You have certain attributes that come from God. Holiness, righteousness. Everyone in this room have some of those attributes? Not infinitely, not perfectly. But that is a part of who I am. It's not fully who I am. Because if it was fully who I was, I would never sin. It's a part. If he is not fully righteous, then he is only relatively righteous. He's righteous depending on the circumstance. If the attributes of of God are parts, God is always changing. He doesn't remain the same. Because he'll stress one attribute here, and then one attribute in this situation, and then another attribute over here in this situation. And it makes God more like us. Herman Bavinck, another good theologian, said this, God would then be immutable in his essence, since the various attributes that make up his nature would fluctuate. At times he would emphasize his justice, while at other times he might emphasize his love. He would not be perfectly and absolutely both loving and just at every moment in time. If God is made up of individual parts, and his attributes do not describe him fully, then those attributes are not going to be active at all times. The biblical doctrine... Yeah, that's small print. God is fully each of his attributes. If God is not fully and absolutely love or fully and absolutely holy or fully and absolutely good, then he is not fully and absolutely God. His nature would change with the passage of time because he would, not, he would have to switch from being loving one moment to holy the next. If we view the attributes of God as merely parts of God, then we've changed him from being God into being more like us. So when we talk about attributes, please do not see these as individual pieces of God or parts of him. Like Bob has brown hair and Bob has a a big nose. That's not what we're talking about. These attributes describe all of God at all times. But that leads to the next wrong view. Well, these attributes describe all of God and they describe him all the time, uh, then they must all be the same thing then we must not be able to make any kind of distinction among the attributes because they're always present and they describe all of him. 
So how do we make a distinction? And here's their argument. God is not made up of parts. He is simple, and that is true. God is simple, and he does not have parts. Therefore, you cannot distinguish between the attributes, because if you distinguish between the attributes, you must be creating parts. But that presents a major problem for us. Because remember, God's nature is far above and beyond anything we can conceptualize. And God's attributes are described in a way and related to things in this world that we can understand. If we can't distinguish between the various attributes of God, then we can't know God. We can't know who he is. Because those attributes are the only way for us to know his nature. They are the only way for us to know who and what God is. And so if you tell me I can't distinguish between any of them, they're all the same thing, God returns back into the darkness and I cannot know him at all. See the problem? Herman Baving again. God's essence is not an abstract reality, devoid of properties, relations, and characteristics. Now I want to mention something. Notice he says essence. We've been talking about God's nature. Nature, essence, being. When you get into metaphysics, there are some technical distinctions there. But for our purposes today, we're just going to use them as being synonymous. So if we say the essence of God or the nature of God or the being of God, we're just talking about his nature. Okay? There, there are more technical distinctions you can make there, but that's not necessary for today. Okay? So what he's saying here is, look, if, if God doesn't have distinguishable attributes, then he has no properties at all that can be used to describe him. Rather, he says, it is absolute fullness of life and infinitely rich. So it cannot be seen at a glance, but it must be revealed to us in this, then in another relation, now from this, and then from another angle. How many of you gone shopping for diamonds? Anybody? Okay. So when you go to the diamond store, you're shopping for diamonds, they put the diamonds out on the little black cloth. Do you just let the diamonds sit there on the table and stare at it? How do you really get an appreciation for the diamond? What do you have to do? You have to pick it up, right? Do you just pick it up and hold it like this? What do you do? You put it in the light. You turn it. You look at it from multiple different angles. You look at the multiple facets of the diamond. Now, that's not a perfect analogy because the facets of diamond are individual parts, so it's not a perfect analogy. But the point is, when you're looking at God, you're not going to look at him in one single little glance or in one single little attribute. You're going to take him from multiple different views on all the attributes. Five marks of God's attributes. First, his attributes are essential. That is to say, they are descriptive of his essence. They describe his nature. And when viewed together they represent the clearest expression of who God is and what he is. Secondly, because they are essential, because they describe his nature, they are also necessary. That is to say that they are required for him to be God. If you take away one of these attributes, he ceases to be God. If you take away the eternality of God and he's no longer eternal, he's no longer God. If you take away his perfect knowledge, he's no longer God. So they are essential and they are necessary. Third, 
they are not exhaustive. Uh, Burkhoff called them analytical descriptive, an analytical descriptive definition. Good old theologian speak. They're descriptions, but they do not encompass everything about God. And even with all the attributes, even if you could understand all the attributes perfectly as they have been revealed, you still would not have a full understanding of who God is. Because those attributes, as they are revealed to us in Scripture, merely take the infinite and give you what the finite mind can actually understand of it. And again, the issue here is not with God's revelation. The issue here is with our capacity to actually understand it. This is baby talk. He's coming down to our level. Fourth, the attributes qualify each other. Um, Let me explain that this way. God is holy and God is just. These are not two separate parts of God. These are both true simultaneously. One qualifies the other. Holiness qualifies his justice. That is to say that God exercises a holy justice. God is righteous and God is love. But both of these attributes qualify each other. God, God's love is a righteous love. And his righteousness is a loving righteousness. And his justice is also loving. And his holy is love. Right? They qualify one another. They interact with one another. They exist simultaneously with each other. And they're never opposed to each other. Fifth, his attributes are reflexive. It's a little bit harder to conceptualize, but all of his attributes focus exclusively on him. They are primarily, first and foremost, descriptions of him. They do not discuss creatures. And they are active toward God. He is their primary object. Let me put it this way. God is love. And he loves himself perfectly, first and foremost, above everything. And that love is shared with his creatures, but his love is primarily directed to himself and for himself. So his attributes are reflexive. They focus primarily on him. God is all of his attributes. And he is all of them all the time. And he is all of them all the time, and he is all of them perfectly. Which has led some people to change the term attributes into perfections. And so you'll see in some of the quotes we have coming that they do not use the term attributes. They call them perfections. And the benefit of calling them perfections is you don't have the the tendency to want to subdivide God into groups or try to shove them all together as though there's no distinction between them. Those two errors we talked about earlier kind of vanish. Um, Biblical doctrine again. God's essence is identical to his perfections. His attributes describe and define his nature. There is no essential distinction between God's essence and his perfections, and there is no essential difference between God's perfections to one another. You can't say God's nature is over here and God's attributes are over here. One is the other. His nature is his attributes. 
Each perfection characterizes God's complete essence simply and eternally. That is to say, God is what he has. He does not merely possess love, justice, and goodness. He is love and justice, eternally, fully, and completely. God is eternally all-powerful, all-holy, and all-loving. His nature defines what he does. He, just, he, isn't, he doesn't just love, he is love. And his love is the manifestation of what he is. Now these attributes, if you take them all together, there's a long list of them. They're classified, they're put into categories. And the categories are meant to help us understand the attributes in one cohesive picture. Um, what we need to understand about these categories when we try to categorize attributes is that these categories are imposed. That is to say, Scripture does not put the attributes of God in various categories. You're not going to go in Scripture and, say, and find a list. These are communicable, these are incommunicable. That's something we do. And not everyone agrees on how they should be categorized or what category they should be placed in. But I'm going to show you three ways to categorize these. And all these, all these different systems, there's only two categories in each. Okay? And we're going to pick the last one for this class. The first one, natural versus moral attributes. Natural attributes, they describe the nature and the essence of God. And so they'll take all of the attributes that they say define and describe the essence and nature of God, and they'll put them under natural Moral uh, examples, self-existence, that would be aseity, simplicity, infinity, things like that. Moral attributes refer to him as being a moral being. And examples there would be truth, goodness, mercy, justice, holiness, etc. What's wrong with this? Anybody see the problem? I'm sorry? Yeah. The problem here is the moral attributes are just as much a description of God's nature as the natural ones. They're all defining his nature. And so to distinguish between them is rather arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a second group. This is probably a little bit more confusing. Transitive and intransitive attributes. Intransitive attributes are those which do not cause effects outside of the divine nature. That is to say, they exist only inside of God. And examples would be like uh, immensity, simplicity, and eternity, or eternality. And then there's the transitive attributes, which produce effects external to God. So um, uh, omnipresence, or, excuse me, omnipotence, benevolence, and justice. So in the first category... They say that these attributes only exist within God and they produce no effect outside of him. And in the second category, these are things that the creatures will actually experience in some way. Well, there's a problem here too. If some attributes never produce an effect outside of his divine nature, then we have no way to know about them. We have no way to understand them. We understand his attributes because they're related to something that we can see that we can understand in our finite mind. If these attributes never go outside of the divine nature, we can't know them. We can't understand them in any way. So we're not going to use these first two. 
we're going to use this last one. Communicable and incommunicable attributes. Incommunicable attributes are those that are communicated or given to creatures. Things like, uh, excuse, sorry, incommunicable are things that are not given to creatures. Let me get it right. These are not given to creatures. Things like aseity, simplicity, immensity. You and I do not have aseity. Aseity is self-existence. Communicable attributes are those which are found in humans. They are in some way communicated to you. Things like power, goodness, mercy, righteousness. But even here we have something of a little problem because this is not a perfect classification. And it's not perfect because at some level, just about all of these attributes are in some way communicated to the creature and to humans. Many of the so-called incommunicable attributes are found in some level in you. Take God's holiness. Well, it's not communicated to you perfectly. You don't have perfect, infinite holiness, but it does exist. Take God's omniscience, his knowledge. Not communicated to you perfectly or infinitely, but you do have knowledge, you do have reasoning, you do have logic. It is communicated in some way. Does that make sense? So you can, some of these can go back and forth between these, but these categories are just intended to help us understand what these attributes are, okay? And it's something we impose just to help us understand it. Everybody copy? Everybody clear? Okay. All three of these run another risk. And it runs the risk of having us think that we're dividing God into two. That we're making God into two big parts. Here's his communicable side and here's the incommunicable side. All three of these divide God into God as he is in himself and God as he is in relation to his creation. And we need to make sure we avoid doing that. Just understand that these categories are something we are imposing on the terms. We are not imposing these categories on God himself. Okay. All of these might disrupt a unified and harmonious view of God's attributes. We need to see God as one harmonious whole, with all of the attributes existing together simultaneously and perfectly. Uh, biblical doctrine says it this way. All classifications of God's perfections seem to divide God in two, leaving no harmony between the perfections and thus no apparent unity in God. If we begin to see these classifications as dividing God up, we've got it wrong. This weakness can be overcome by seeing the first class of perfections, incommunicable, as qualifying the second class, and vice versa, so that it can be said that God is one, absolute, unchangeable, and infinite in his knowledge and wisdom, his goodness and his love, his grace and mercy, his righteousness and his holiness. All right, this is the last slide. I just want to show you a basic breakdown between communicable and incommunicable. Okay? This is not a perfect list. There are going to be a lot who disagree, and as I go through my study, I might change one of these. So, but this is basically how it breaks down, and I hope you guys can see this in the back. Can you guys read this in the back? Okay. So incommunicable, you have things like aseity, self-existence. God needs nothing to exist. If I walk into a room and there's no oxygen in that room, I'm a goner, 
right? God doesn't have that problem. He exists. He has life within himself. Um, eternality, omnipotence, these are considered incommunicable in that they are not communicated to you. On the other side, you have communicable attributes, and this list is a little bit longer. Uh, spirituality, in, uh, invisibility, God is spirit, uh, wisdom, truth, goodness, love, grace, long-suffering, holiness, righteousness, jealousy, will. All of these are considered communicable. That is, they are communicated and given to you in some level to some degree. Although never perfectly and never infinitely. Okay? Everybody understand? Any questions? That's the last slide. If you have any questions, comments, concerns... Mm-hmm. I didn't say it like that. He never changes. He's immutable. And anything and everything we do, I think we kind of discussed this, mentioned this at the beginning. Anything we do, we can, we can attribute more or less glory to him, but we cannot do anything to change his essential nature. Yes, sir. Um, this would probably be referring more to his moral holiness. If you're talking about his majestic holiness, then no, it wouldn't be considered communicable. And we'll, yeah, we'll talk about that when we get to actual holiness. But yeah, and, and like I said, you can some of these you can make an argument to move them to one side or the other. This is not a perfect classification. So, and the the more you learn about it, the harder it becomes to put them in the right category. All right, anything else? Any other questions, comments, concerns? No? All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we, uh, we thank you so much that you have uh, revealed yourself to us. Uh, it's humbling to think about who you are, uh, to see you rightly, to see ourselves rightly in comparison to you. And we do thank you that even though we are finite and that we struggle to understand these things, that you have come down to our level, that you have been gracious and merciful to us in showing us who you are and what you are. And we do ask that you would help us as we go forward in this class, that this class would be glorifying to you, and that we would all learn more about you, and that that, that knowledge would lead to greater worship of you and more holy living. And we do ask that you would bless our time this morning of worship, and we ask all this in Christ's name.